1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, and Hungary, the so called Visegrad Four, have been increasingly prosperous since the Iron Curtain fell. But 30 years on, the flows of people and of European money are shifting the Visegrad economies look precarious. And we take a look at how useful managers are. It's not all just breathing down your neck, making sure you're contributing to the company's bottom line. The best ones improve collaboration, and new research suggests they can be sneaky when they do it. First up, though. The usually tranquil capital of Chile has filled with huge crowds of demonstrators for nearly two weeks. Chanting for equality, hundreds of thousands of people have protested peacefully. We all empowered ourselves. We do not need a government
2: spokesperson. We do not need anyone to accompany us or support us because the public
1: voice has already been heard. It is obvious, it is clear, it is here. But some of the civil unrest turned uncivil and violent, with metro stations burned and shops looted. The president, Sebastián Piñera, initially declared a state of emergency and sent troops onto the streets. But he since changed his tone. We have all understood the message. We have all changed. Now we must join forces to give truthful, urgent and responsible answers to these social demands. He spoke of moving toward a fairer and peaceful Chile, but protests continue undiminished.
0: Demonstrators in Chile have been set off initially by a rise in transport fares. Brooke Unger is our America's editor but the anger kind of quickly moved on to other issues that, that Chileans have long been concerned about, very low pensions, that the high cost and low quality of education, ditto for health care, and a sort of sense that you know Chile, despite being one of South America's most successful economies, is really a pretty unequal place that's dominated by its elites.
1: But despite that inequality, Chile is not, really, is not known for this, this kind of, uh, of, of protest.
0: Well, I mean, certainly what we saw over the weekend, a million people out in the streets in Santiago, which is a huge number for a country of Chile's size. And, you know, the, the protests we had leading up to that, looting and, uh, and arson and uh, quite a number of deaths, I think twenty around 20 deaths. These are not common in Chile. But, you know, that said, there is precedent for protest in Chile. I mean, in the democratic era, we had, we had a wave of protests about education several years ago. More recently we had a wave of protests about the the uh, pension system so it's not as if protest is unprecedented in Chile and what is it
1: that the protesters
0: want I mean I, I would say that in a way that the, the, the anger you're seeing in Chile is is the kind of anger you're seeing in in more developed countries rather than in, in poorer countries you know, Chile has has long been kind of a model country in, in South America. It's got among the highest levels of income per capita. It's a well-managed, uh, stable economy, um, you know, with pretty high levels of, you know, well-being, life expectancy, human development. And, you know, so it, it's, you know, long been one of the region's most successful economies. But the the, the Chilean model relies to a large extent on kind of private provision of what are normally seen to be public services. So, for example, with with pensions, people rely not primarily on state pensions, but on pensions that they save up for themselves. You know, with education, you have people paying top-up fees to municipal schools. So, you know, there's, there's a, a fairly heavy reliance on, on the market in providing public services, and you know this has led to to a good deal of inequality in the provision of public services, to a kind of two tier health system. So there's a real sense that the the system that relies so heavily on private initiative is really not working for for everybody in Chile.
1: And and how has President Piñera responded to these protests?
0: Well, I mean, initially his response was very aggressive. I mean, he said the country was at war. The police response to the protests has been sort of fairly heavy-handed. There are investigations of possible abuses by the police forces. But Piñera does seem to have woken up to the depth of people's anger, and he's kind of changed tack. He's sacked a large number of people in in his cabinet, including the interior minister and the the finance minister, and he's bowed to uh, what he takes to be the protesters' demands, at least some of the protesters' demands. He's promised... Higher pensions. He's promised uh, better provision for health care. Uh, he's promised a higher minimum wage. He's now trying to allay the grievances of, of people.
1: So, do you think that that those changes, that 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 approach on 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 the part of the president, will be enough to to quell the protests?
0: Well, I mean, it's hard to tell, I and mean, we still had protests yesterday. One of the difficulties is that the, the leadership of this movement really isn't very clear. It's it's quite an amorphous movement, and there's no real codified list of demands and it's not entirely clear whom the president should be talking to. There's one school of thought that uh, Chile needs much more change than the president is likely to give. There's a revival of a demand, for example, for a constituent assembly that would rewrite the constitution and basically reinvent the country. And I think a lot of people would would, would be nervous about that. Even though people have justified grievances against the way the system works, the Chilean model doesn't need wholesale reinvention. And I think people would be would be worried about a, a, you know, a new constitution writing process that sort of took the country to a destination that, you know, nobody can really foresee.
1: So if wholesale reinvention isn't what's needed, what, what do you think is, what would be the best way to, uh, to, to tweak the Chilean model such that this kind of inequality, this kind of un, unrest goes away?
0: Well, I mean, I think the president has already started to address some of these things. I think, first of all, it's fairly clear that in some areas there does need to be more state spending on, you know, services like health and education. I think The rich in in Chile are taxed at a lower rate than they are in most developed countries. So I think, you know, the rich have to pay more tax. And, you know, there has to be a sort of serious attempt to to break up the oligopolies that dominate some areas of, of, of Chilean business. In general, Chile is a prosperous country where the fruits of that prosperity are very unevenly distributed. And what the government has to do now is to change that perception and to change that reality.
1: Brooke, thank you very much
0: for joining us. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thirty years ago, a revolutionary wave brought an end to communist rule in Central and Eastern Europe. The Iron Curtain had fallen, and in 1991, a summit was held in the scenic Hungarian castle town of Visegrad. The meeting place alluded to a medieval congress attended by the kings of Bohemia, Poland, and Hungary, who met in the year 1335 to resolve international disputes. The 1991 meeting echoed the medieval one in fostering friendship and cooperation between Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Poland. The leaders of the three countries formed the Visegrad Group, And after Czechoslovakia dissolved in 1993, the Czech Republic and Slovakia became independent members, making it a group of four, the four. The countries sought integration with Western Europe, joining the European Union at the same time in 2004. And in many respects, they followed similar paths. Today, 15 years on, all four have experienced substantial economic growth, albeit alongside democratic decline.
3: Fifteen years after the accession of the four Visegrad states to the European Union, the V4 can be much prouder of their economic achievements than their progress with political reform.
1: Vendelin von Bredow is our European business and finance correspondent.
3: Electoral democracy, as measured by a Swedish researcher, has regressed in each member of the club. And the decline has been especially steep in Hungary and in Poland. And so far, the European Union has been quite toothless in sanctioning them, although I think they're now applying a bit more pressure on Hungary. At the same time, the four countries have all significantly increased their levels of GDP per capita, and they all converged economically with Germany. So the Czech Republic is the richest of them. You can really feel it when you walk around in Prague. You know, it seems a very prosperous place. And the Czech GDP per capita is equivalent of 73% of Germany's, followed by its neighbor Slovakia with 63%, and then Hungary and Poland with 57% each.
1: And so why do you think it is that these four countries have, have been so economically successful?
3: Well, in truth, they are very dependent on four external forces, and they are so dependent because they are extremely open economies. So the first is their reliance on transfer payments from the EU, whether they are solidarity funds or cohesion funds. And these transfer payments account for a big chunk of their respective GDP. Second is the generous flow of remittances by millions of expat citizens who have emigrated and now live and work mostly in Germany and Britain but also in other countries like Austria or Italy. Then there's a very benevolent economic cycle that is helping, especially the recent success of the German economy that just had basically 10 golden years. And Germany is by far the most important trading partner and the biggest or second biggest investor in each of these four countries. But the German boom seems to be coming to an end. And that'll definitely affect all four of them, and particularly Hungary and Slovakia and a little less Poland, because Poland is a little bit more self-sufficient than the others.
1: And, and what's the final force they depend
3: on? And last but not least, you mustn't forget that they started from a low base. They were very poor, but they might have reached a plateau now because their success in the last sort of 10, 15 years was a lot due to being a fairly cheap place to produce compared with more developed economies. But of course, now wages are catching up. So that is changing. They risk getting stuck in what economists call the middle income trap. So they are not quite the cheap workshop anymore, but they can't really take the next step and become a truly developed economy.
1: So it sounds as if, though things have been quite rosy since EU accession, these economies do have huge vulnerabilities. What do you think the countries are worried most about?
3: For the countries themselves, they are most concerned about losing a big chunk of EU funds, which will inevitably happen, partly because they are richer now, and so they need less help. So the subsidy payments will go down. But the second reason is that Brexit seems, if not imminent, at least it's coming in some shape or form. So the EU is losing a big net contributor. And thirdly, of course, the EU is very unhappy with democracy regressing, in particular in Hungary and Poland. So they feel far less generous towards these countries and they will make help conditional on democratic reform or at least improvements of the democratic process in these countries.
1: Well, that democratic decline certainly closes the tap somewhat on EU funds, but do you think the populist policies of some of these governments have had more direct internal economic effects?
3: Well, yes. So another important issue in all four countries is immigration and labor shortages. They have a great lack of skilled labor, which has become a problem for the economy because they can't produce as much as they would like to simply because they're lacking the staff. Now, you could say, well, immigration can help labor shortages, but all four are fiercely anti-immigration they don't allow immigrants from nearly all countries maybe with the exception of close neighbors such as ukraine so they're trying to help this with policies for instance to increase fertility rates they make it financially attractive for women to have children which is a policy pursued particularly in poland and hungary at great expense but so far with little success They're also making it easier for women to have children and to work. So there is easier access to free childcare. That is actually helping. That is getting more women in the workforce, but not really enough to compensate for basically an aging population.
1: But there are also people from those countries moving abroad, all those remittances that you were talking about. Do you think that that flow of people and of money will continue as well?
3: Yes, remittances will probably continue because the vast majority of emigrants from these countries don't show any inclination to return anytime soon. So that, I think, will continue as long as the economy in Germany in particular is doing reasonably well. But the storm clouds are gathering, and the German economy seems to be set for a downturn. Which of course means that Poles and Hungarians and Slovaks working in Germany might lose their job or make far less money, which also then will impact the amount of money they can send home.
1: And so what's the solution here, if not the simple one, of have less populist self-defeating governance?
3: Well, that would certainly help because, for instance, it would make it more attractive for V4 emigrants to return to their countries. But also it would make the EU happier again to help these countries because, of course, they still do need help. They've made enormous progress, but I mean, there's still a a, a pretty considerable gap between East and West in Europe.
1: Thank you very much for joining us, Vendelin.
3: It's been a pleasure.
1: Are you, are you listening to this podcast at work? Well, get back to work. In lots of jobs, managers monitor how productive their underlings are. The received wisdom is that without that oversight, some employees just wouldn't get any work done. But how to watch the watchers? I think workers are
2: puzzled
1: as to what managers really do. Philip Coggan writes Bartleby, our column covering management and work
2: whether they're just inventing tasks for them to perform and filling up their day with mindless bureaucracy or whether they're giving them proper direction. And it's very difficult if you look at the day of the average manager to work out by the time they go home what they've actually achieved. Managers... I think, are in two minds, really, about their own role. If they didn't want to be managers, they wouldn't have taken on the task of organising their fellow workers. But there must be points at which they wonder what they themselves are doing, and there must be days in which they're immensely frustrated. It's quite difficult for both workers and managers to work out exactly what the contribution is.
1: So how to do it then? How might you, if you wanted to measure such a thing, how could you do it?
2: So two academics tried to do a test. Now they used an experiment called the public goods game and that involves giving people a number of tokens, then asking them to invest the tokens. You then double the contributions and then you split the returns among all the participants. That allows for people to be free riders, not to contribute, but it also means that if you do cooperate, then everybody ends up with more money. So they did a variant on this test where they split the people into managers and workers. And they also did two sort of twists to it. In one, the managers were allowed to contribute, and the others, they weren't. And another set, managers got a fixed rate, a portion of the return, and others they allow to vary it themselves.
1: Splitting up this game into groups where the managers stand to directly benefit or not and stand to directly participate or not.
2: They benefit in all the cases. They get a fixed rate of benefit in some cases and a varying benefit in others, but at their discretion. What they found in this experiment was that the mere presence of managers and workers and the feeling that managers were chipping in helped get a better return than if you had no hierarchy at all. But what they also found was that managers learned how to game the system. They were sneaky. So where they could vary their contributions or where they could vary the returns they got, what they did was they contributed in the early rounds or gave the workers a big share in the early rounds, waited for the pot to build up, and for workers to regularly contribute. And then the last minute, they stopped contributing or they took more of the reward when it was too late for the workers to react. So any incentive system, therefore, has a potential for managers to game it.
1: Well, people take advantage of any opportunity to game the system. What does this tell you about the distinction between workers and managers?
2: Well, it shows that while we might need managers, while there's a need for coordination, you have to set up these incentive schemes as carefully as you can and make sure you're rewarding the right behaviour. So the analogy here is with the overall economy where managers have been rewarded over the last 30, 35 years with share options and the pay, the overall remuneration of managers relative to that of workers has shot up enormously over that period thanks to this reward and share options. But share options are linked to the share price and the share price is linked to the ability to meet short-term profit targets. That means that long-term investment plans, which tend to dent short-term profits are not to the immediate advantage of managers. And sure enough, Andrew Smithers, in his book, Productivity in the Bonus Culture, found that the proportion of cash flows going to share buybacks and dividends has risen substantially, has doubled over the last
1: 20 years. So the upshot of all this is we do need managers. We just have to keep an eye on them in the way that they're keeping their eyes on us.
2: Yes, we have to make sure that the incentive system is right. And it's extremely difficult in all sorts of fields. If you're bringing up your children, I remember a child that we did an nanny share with wouldn't eat his food. And when the parents found that he wouldn't eat his food, they were worried he'd be not getting enough nutrition. So they gave him an ice cream if he didn't eat his food. So naturally the kid learned that if he resolutely failed to eat the cabbage, ice cream would arrive. That's the wrong sort of incentive system. We have to make sure managers aren't rewarded in the same way. Phil, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason.